Where's the body? Down back. Finally. Love you, babe. The darker chapter. Her secret diary. Her page is missing. Before Laura Palmer's murder. Freak accident. <laughs> the killer will strike again. Who knows where or when? Twin Peaks. Fire. Walk with me. Rated on. Unwrapped. I'm your host, Ben Durant, and beside me is Brian Kazaska. And today uh, we're going to be covering Firewalk with Me for the 30th anniversary. Firewalk with Me, Teresa Banks, and the last seven days of Laura Palmer. We're going to have the unseen players coming in and doing this episode, part one. We're going to have six scenes, and we'll be back with a part two uh, with another six scenes. Today's panel, we are going to have Emily Marinelli from the Twin Peaks Tattoo Podcast and the man with two first names, Colin James, from the Cream Corn in the Universe, a Twin Peaks podcast. These two are brand, kind of brand new in the Twin Peaks podcast scene, um, and it's so awesome to have you guys on the panel today. How you guys doing? Doing great. Thanks so much for inviting us in. I'm so excited to talk about Fire Walk with me and, and you know, deleted scenes and unseen things. Yeah, it's great. And maybe we can talk about tattoos a little bit too, if you want. And I'm still just astounded that I'm actually able to talk to you both on this side because I just spent so much time listening to you all like through all your episodes. So I'm still just trying to let this all sink in on my end. Awesome. It's great to have you guys on uh, today's you. show. Our th- This is kind of a big episode for us. We're all big fans of Fire Walk With Me. I think it's probably my favorite Lynch film. I still consider it a standalone film that Eraserhead and this one are like my top favorites. And Ben, uh, I know this is like one of your tops. Oh yeah, it's up there with Lost Highway. With Lost Highway. <laughs> Lost Highway. I have to, shouldn't I say it because it's a Twin Peaks podcast, this is my favorite Lynch film. I should say that, right? Yeah, you so- should just say that. It is really one of my favorites and still I still I can't believe it's been 30 years. I can still remember going to the theater that weekend and seeing it. And I think it only lasted two weeks in theaters. So I was glad I went the, the weekend that it was, you know, the first weekend there. What's oh, everybody's first experience with Firewalk with me? Emily, what, when's the first time you saw Firewalk with me? Well, I saw Firewalk with me just in my bedroom on like a very, very small TV. I had rented it, I think a VHS or something like that. But then I saw it later on at the Castro Theater in San Francisco, where I was living. And uh, it was uh, 
it's the Castro and it's San Francisco. So everybody dressed up. And so oh, I wow. was like full Donna Hayward, Moira Kelly's Donna Hayward. And, um, and everybody was lined up and there was someone dressed as Waldo. I mean, it was like a whole spectacular thing when I Jack's characters. And I remember running into the Castro theater and getting like a front row seat just so I could be there. And I was by myself because none of my friends wanted to go. So I was there by myself, full Donna. And then afterward, I, I was kind of feeling alone and the movie is so intense to watch. And I was feeling a lot of emotions and there was a, a, a girl dra- uh, wrapped in plastic at the, at the, the stage. And she like, she motioned me come up and we just started kind of like doing the like kicks together, like they do at the picnic kicks. And she was wrapped in plastic. So the plastic was kind of like making it where she couldn't kick very well. Um, and then her boyfriend came up as James and, and handed me a beer and, and she was like, chug a lug, Donna. And so then I like drank, it, it was just a really cute moment. So that's, that's how I, that's what I think about when I think about Firewalk with me. That's cool. For my first introduction, I actually managed to watch through the entirety of the original series without realizing there was a movie. And I watched on Netflix at the time and I thought I was like, oh, it's a shot in the dark. Maybe season three is on Netflix. And so I type in Twin Peaks and then says titles related to Firewalk. And they're like, what's this? And I actually thought it was like a documentary about the original series just off the title. So I go on IMDb like, wait, there's a movie like about Laura as like, well, yeah, I mean, I know how it ends, but Lynch is back on board. So I'm I'm all for because I was one of those people that. Uh, was a little critical on the rough patch of the season two. So I was just happy that Lynch was able to have his like uncompromised vision. And I genuinely didn't realize that I would like, this would be like the movie that would actually make me the fan I am now just because Shirley's performance just like moved me in a way that I didn't expect. It was like something I thought about for like actively probably for weeks, if not months after that. Yeah. It's that's haunting. Awesome. Yeah. I, then I think my first time seeing Firewalk with me might've been, I watched by myself for the podcast and then we got to see it in the theater a couple of years ago yeah. and we're hoping it will come back to the theater for the 30th anniversary. We only have a few weeks though. So I mean, well, <laughs> for August year. Yeah, I did see, I mean, I don't know when this, this, when this is out, when we're recording, it's a little bit earlier. I did see uh, a theater in California, I believe was, they were showing a film version of it. I, um, mm. which when we saw it in the theater, it was a Blu-ray version. Uh, we had asked and they said that was just from blu-ray um so it would be great to see a film the film version of it so all the grain yeah i want to see all the grain i want to see catch on fire maybe at the end really really have the whole experience well here are the unseen players Hi friends, it's Wild Bill Abelson. You know, 30 years ago this month, when this film made its American debut on August 16th at the North Bend Theater for the first festival, it was total sellout. They crammed me into the spare projectionist's booth. It was 105 degrees in that sweat box. Talk about fire walk with me. Well, in our alleged present, I'll be narrator for Lil's scene and Philip's scene. Then I'll play Harold Smith, man from another place, and Fisherman Pete. Hi, I'm Julia Rollo, and I'm playing the narrator, and Josie. Hi, my name is Aaron Cohen, and I'm playing Special Agent Dale Cooper and the role of the narrator. Hi, this is Bob Clear. You can also call me Killer Robert. Uh, Today, for this episode, I'll be reading parts for Stanley, Leo, and Jerry. Hi, this is Blythe Elise Horman. 
I'll be playing Cole in scene one, narrator in scenes five and ten, and Laura in scene six. Diana Stavrilakis. Hi, I'm Robin Lynn Norris, and I'll be playing Sylvia Horn and Carl Rod. Good evening. My name is Chris Matthews. I will be providing the voices of Deputy Cliff in scenes two and three, the bellhop in scene four, the narrator in scene six, and finally, Johnny in scene 11. Hi, this is Marcel Fraser. I'm going to be playing Sheriff Cable, Ben Horn, and Big Ed. Hi, I'm Peter Holland. I'm playing Leland and also doing some narration. Hello, this is Andy Bentley. I will be playing the Gordon Cole, Sparky, and a Sheriff Truman. Hi, I'm Yvette Zepfel, and I will be reading narrator from scene eight, and because I'm secretly in love with him, Albert from scene four. Hello, my name is Maya Adkins, and I will be playing Jeffries and Laura. Hello, fellow Twin Peaks fans. This is Becky Plant, and I am playing Donna, narrator, and Laura. Hey, this is Joyce Picker, and on this podcast, I will be playing Laura Palmer, Nadine Hurley, and the narrator of Don't Forget Johnny Horn's Birthday Today. So this show is like, you know, we, we've done it before where we, we look at the script. We kind of try to find deleted scene or scenes or like uh, wrapped in plastic. The old magazine, John Thorne there used to do the unseen scenes and they would go really deep into those kind of deleted scenes that never made it to air. So that's what this is. We're doing covering Firewalk with me. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to get into this. And this is this will be really fun. Have you guys have you guys um, for your podcast really discussed Firewalk with me much? Or I mean, I I've listened to your podcast, but I don't know that format. You guys, your format isn't like you don't cover every episode. Every show could be something different, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So for me, I just talk to people about their Twin Peaks tattoos and what it means to them, what their ink means to them. And so sometimes Fire Walk With Me comes up, depending on what we're talking about, especially with like Blue Rose tattoos, which, of course, I have one. I love Blue Rose tattoos it does come up. So I interview folks and ask them questions about their tattoos, what it means to them and what their experience with Twin Peaks is, the personal side of it, right? And then sometimes we nerd out about theories and MST3K and other stuff, which just happens. And then whatever themes come up in our conversation at the beginning of the episode, I tell a little personal story related to it. So that's the, that's the format for me. How about for you, Colin? Yeah. And uh, for me, I actually, uh, in late June, I actually did record a episode. It's called Laura Palmer and Her Last Seven Days. And it's focused explicitly on everything from the one year later until the angel scene. So I have that aspect of Fire Walk Me Down. I'm just waiting for the 30th anniversary to put that out. And it just seemed like it was like the only time I really could put an episode out like that. And uh, I'm actually really happy with how it turned out. But as for everything else with Deer Meadow and Philip Jeffries, I've yet to get around to that, but I have written a lot down about a lot of those characters in that time. Small government plane lands outside of Portland. Dale Cooper exits the plane and meets with Gordon Cole and another man that goes by the name Sam Stanley. Where's Albert? Prior commitments and expensive air travel. Motioning to a man standing there. Coop, give Sam Stanley the glad hand. He's come over from Spokane. 
Cooper and Stanley shake. It's a pleasure. I've heard a lot about you. Sam's the man who cracked the Whiteman case. Congratulations. I heard about that. Your surprise, Coop. Her name is Lil. Lil walks to them from another room. She goes into a contorted dance. Things we notice during her dance. She makes a sour face. She walks in place. She puts one hand in her pocket and makes a fist with the other. While she is doing this, she blinks both eyes, and she is wearing a red wig. She's my mother's sister's girl. Cole holds four fingers in front of his eyes. Cooper notices Cole's fingers. Federal? Cole gives him the thumbs up. Lil finishes her dance. Good luck, Coop. Right, Gordon. We'll be in touch. Cooper drives his car on the highway towards Deer Meadow. As they barrel down the highway... That was really something. What did it mean? Code. Gordon and I have put in a lot of time together. Code. I've heard a lot about this. It's a sort of shorthand. Shorthand? Really? We're heading into a difficult situation. How do you figure? I'll explain it to you. Do you remember Lil's dance? As Cooper explains, we see Lil's dance in slow motion. We focus on her sour face. Lil was wearing a sour face. What do you mean? Her face had a sour look. That means we're going to have trouble with the local authorities. They are not going to be receptive to the FBI. We now focus on Lil's blinking eyes. Both eyes blinking mean there is going to be trouble higher up. The eyes of the local authority. A sheriff and a deputy. That would be my guess. Two of the local law enforcers are going to be a problem. If you noticed, she had one hand in her pocket, which means they are hiding something. And the other hand made a fist, which means they are going to be belligerent. Lil was walking in place, which means there's going to be a lot of legwork involved. We see Cole putting his fingers in front of his face and saying Lil is his sister's girl. Cole said Lil was his mother's sister's girl. What is missing in that sentence? The uncle. Oh, the uncle is missing. Not Cole's uncle, but probably the sheriff's uncle is in federal prison. So the sheriff has got an uncle who's committed a serious crime. Right. Which is probably why Lil was wearing a red wig, meaning we are heading into a dangerous situation. Let me ask you something, Stanley. Did you notice anything about the dress? The dress she was wearing had been altered to fit her. It wasn't her dress, or she must have lost some weight. Gordon said you were good. Stanley rides along quietly for a while. What did Gordon's tie mean? That's just Gordon's bad taste. Why couldn't he have just told you all these things? He talks loud. I see. He does talk loud. Gordon would not have sent us to Deer Meadow without thinking it was a high-priority situation. It must be a high-priority situation. Cooper's car continues down the highway. What are your thoughts on this, Emily? Well, Lil is probably like one of my favorite characters in Firewalk with me. So I'm always excited to hear about Lil. And the the major kind of differences is like, right, where's the blue rose? Like, where is that conversation? It's not there. And so, you know, what what is that? Is it not written yet? What, what is the omission? I, I don't know. Maybe we could talk about that. Because for me, Lil is not just wearing it, but she's like the holder of the blue rose. Like she has weirdness and secrecy about her. And she represents 
what is what is not known. And so um, that's an important piece. And also the the different color thread that Stanley talks about in the film, meaning drugs is also not there, which I think is such an important link uh, with Teresa and and Laura. So those were the big highlights for me. And, you know, I, I love the Gordon's tie is just bad taste line. I like little <laughs> funny the, the film is so is so intense and so hard to watch. Any of those little glimmers of humor for me really work. So that really lifted up. And I thought that the players did a great job of of making it making it. So, oh, also the MO, the modus operandi. I was missing that. I love that part. So, mm. yeah, those are some of my thoughts. I guess to uh, build off of that, um, you know, not only is there not a Blue Rose uh, mentioned, but the red wig is explicitly stated. And uh, Lynch is very deliberate with color. So, you know, and obviously red is like a more nefarious color, at least from what my interpretation. So I just thought it was interesting that he shifted from red to blue to focus on this scene. And I was also thinking that I do think the joke of the Gorn's tie being bad taste, but I do wonder, like, theoretically, if that was left in the script, if Lynch would have added, like, a layer just with the tie-in of itself. And um, I guess the other one is that I also view uh, Cooper's being a little less sarcastic than Desmond, uh, mostly the sour look, where the delivery is... Because I always feel like that with Desmond, he always, like, kind of thinks less of Stanley, like he's just kind of low-key annoyed with him. Yeah. But Cooper seems like he wants to level with him and just, uh, you know, just try to be on the same page with him. And I guess, sorry, I have to bring this up, but I do wonder if the scene in any way does reaffirm John Thorne's theory about Agent Desmond, where it's like mm -hmm. this is him like cooper's first adventure of going through deer meadow and then like then desmond would be the dream aspect of it mostly working with the first draft of the script and in that original uh draft we had kyle mclaughlin for the whole movie so in, yeah you have cooper so it is kind of fun i remember reading this thinking i don't know if i could buy cooper in this because we're so used to uh chet there but when aaron is performing this is like wow i do see cooper could be in this place and he is chummy with cole and i could see it working but it's funny how it wasn't until actually hearing it i could say okay i see how how it could have been cooper all along yeah i i feel like a multiple universe and different universe i would love to see this movie uh with kyle mclaughlin in uh firewalk with me when I'm looking at this, the script, I was thinking about how Cole does the whole thing with his hand over his face and, you know, about codes. And I was like, oh, that kind of makes me think of season three and about like how, you know, you said certain words that were like ways of saying this, that that Mr. C didn't pick up correctly. And, it, mm. and he went over with Diane and did the each finger and stuff like that. But it was funny to see they did bring that whole Cole and his codes back into season three. And, and it reminded me of this scene. Yeah, with Tammy. Yeah, the whole finger stuff. Right. And if the Blue Rose was, if, if say, Kyle McLaughlin had done this film, would the Blue Rose cases not exist? Would, would the return be completely different? Would it, it, right. would it be, it would kind of change the future of Twin Peaks, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, was the Blue Rose really put in there to get rid of Chet? <laughs> because, like, we just needed you for the, we just yes. needed you for the first half hour, and now <laughs> we can get rid of you. And <laughs> Yes. But, but his you magical know, disappearance, uh, you know, is, is so important and interesting. And for me, I just did a rewatch, and every time when Coop comes in finally, about half an hour in, is it, 
into that Philadelphia office, I just take a breath like, oh, right, Coop, you know, and that's like a that's like a dramatic moment. And so I don't want that to change. I mean, mm. you know, I like thinking about Cooper. This is it is a multi-universe imagining, but I like I like I love Desmond. I love what I love what Chris Isaac is doing in the show. I wish I kind of want it. I want more Chris Isaac. I was mm. wait, where is he in the return? Let's get Chris yeah. Isaac come in here. Um, but but that moment of taking my breath away of Coop going into the office, uh, uh, that's special. I know that first time I saw the movie in theaters, it probably was only like 20 people in the theater seeing this, but you know, just that there was the, the blue static at the beginning and there's the music. And when it comes, brings up Kyle McLaughlin, the whole audience just crowd was like clapping and loud. I mean, they were excited just to see his name, you know? So uh, yeah, you're right. That there's such a moment just when he finally comes into the film. Canyon Trailer Court, Teresa's trailer. Stanley is finishing up his work. Carl brings Cooper and Sam their coffee. Can I tell you something? That's a damn good cup of coffee. <laughs> That's right. That's the best coffee you're going to get around here. Stanley watches Cooper drink. You really do like that coffee, don't you, Agent Cooper? You really do like that coffee, don't you, Agent Cooper? A woman sticks her head into the trailer. She has an ice pack over one eye and a load of idle curiosity. Cooper notices her. Did you know Teresa Banks? She just nods in the negative and leans back out. Behind her is Deputy Cliff, who looks into the trailer. Hey, how's J. Edgar doing? Bet you appreciate them busting your morning half, eh, Carl? But they woke you up. They're only doing their job. What are you doing here in the trailer court, Deputy? Maybe I just live here. What do you think about that? Can I ask you where you were the night Teresa Banks was murdered? You can tell Jay Edgar that I was at a party and I got 15 fucking witnesses. Maybe if you did a little less partying, that little girl would still be alive. Or was that right, Mr. Jack Daniels? Do you know Teresa Banks? Got a couple of cups of coffee at Haps from her. That's it. By the way, where do you get off questioning a lawman? I can ask you the same question. No, you couldn't. Cliff pushes out of the trailer. Cooper stands in the doorway of the trailer and watches Cliff get into his car and drive to work. Stepping away from the trailer, Cooper spots something underneath. He bends down and retrieves a Titleist golf ball. Is there a golf course around here? Not a lot around here, no. Got some clubs. But not very many fellows with balls. (laughs) Cooper drops the ball in a plastic bag and gives it to Stanley, who puts it in his kit. Cooper turns to Carl. Thanks for your help, Carl. Sorry we woke you up. That's all right. I was having a bad dream. I was dreaming about a joke with no punchline. Cooper and Stanley nod to Carl and walk to their car. I couldn't help but notice that you had a suspicion that Deputy Cliff was the murderer. You did think that, didn't you, Agent Cooper? He's not a murderer, but he is a bozo. Yes, he is like a clown. Cooper walks around the car to the driver's side and gets in. So, Colin, what do you think about this scene? Oh, that's, uh, there's, I guess, a lot to go by because it's a totally different vibe because definitely the damn good cup of coffee makes it a little more uh, a little more lighthearted but also uh for me the other part is that uh cooper actually doesn't respond to the question because when sam stanley asked you we, we need a good cup of coffee don't we desmond 
he does actually it does prompt a response but mm. the big standout for me is that deputy cliff definitely adds a more contentious atmosphere but having just the old woman the final cut as that like omnipresent that there's something horribly wrong and also uh when they talk about carl rod where he talks about the dream as if in the script it's really just he woke up from a bad dream but in fire walk with me you see it where he just stands there and just like you know he's not himself and i feel like mm. that adds so much more so while I do like the scene quite a bit in the script, I think what we got in the you know in the final cut was uh, much better. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. I was I was rewatching Carl's. Carl says in the movie, see, he gets really teary eyed. He says, "See, I've already gone places. I just want to stay where I am." And we don't really know what this means in Fire Walk with Me, but now with the return, we we know that Carl is really special. He has seeing powers, right? He sees the boy's spirit when he passes at the intersection. Yeah. Like Carl's really, he knows things. He's seen things. And we can imagine, you know, lots gone down at Fat Trap Trailer Park. And so, and he just wants to stay home now. He doesn't want to go anywhere else. Like just leave him alone. Don't talk to him before 9 a.m. Like he just needs to stay where he's at. Um, but that's a really powerful, beautiful scene that I feel like it, it is missing from the script um, that we just heard. Um, and it does. I agree with you, Colin, you know, Cliff. Oh, my gosh. And he did such a great job of Cliff, of embodying mm-hmm. Cliff in this little segment we just listened to. But he does add a really contentious energy and aspect to the thing. And I love the golf ball at the end and thinking about, I think we talked about this yesterday too, Colin, when you and I spoke about how there's a nod to Leland in that with the golf bag and there's something about golf balls and golf bags that, that comes in for me there. So something very sinister. And I was thinking as I was listening and rewatching the curious woman that comes in, I think she's called the curious woman. She definitely has like a woodsman vibe. And I, I had this hit yesterday of like, with the ice pack and the cane, almost like something happened to her. Like maybe she literally is like a fallen woodsman. Like she literally fell down, like fell out of a window of the convenience store or something and like Mm -hmm. hurt herself. And she's, I see her as someone who's coming in to kind of like check on Teresa. Like, is Teresa here? Is Teresa okay? Almost like as a fallen woodsman, she's like, checking and being curious about if what what where Teresa is and what Teresa is doing. Mm. Um, this is just a fun thing I'm playing with with mm. this curious woman. Um, yeah. But I think of her as a protector, even though she has a kind of a sinister vibe too. But um, but almost like she's too late, right? She comes in, Teresa's gone. The other thing that's so great about this scene for me is I love looking at Teresa's trailer. I love all of the the slow pans to all of the things, all of the items in her trailer and all the things that they're looking at. It's just so beautiful for me. I like that you say like like she could be a woodsman yeah. because, uh, you know, there's the another trailer that had a grandmother and her and a grandson. You know what I mean? Like there was like there's definitely weird stuff going on in this trailer park. I mean, right. And the golf ball definitely makes me think of Leland that, you know, Leland and his golf. Ball. So, yeah, you've got this definitely a, a strange trailer park. Um, yeah, I don't know. What are you calling her? The, the, the woman, the mystery woman there? Or is she, I think it's called the curious woman. Isn't that the what she's called? Maybe, it, wait, maybe she is called that. Yeah, I remember seeing that for the first time in the movie and saying, I feel like we're missing something. Like she goes in, it's a really tense, weird thing. And then she just leaves and then we kind of just move on. And it seems like it's like there was just something cut. And sure enough, there was Cliff that would have played a part in this and you would have had this interaction with, with the deputy. And, you know, we interviewed uh, the actor, Rick Aiello. 
he he said that you know he he had done a lot of movies like i think he did like do the right thing like he did a lot of like gangster kind of uh brooklyn cops and stuff and he played it that way he'd never seen any of lynch's films and so he kind of played it you know a lot fast talking and and Lynch's like, no, no, no. And Lynch says this to everybody too, but he says, slow it down, slow it down. And I, I think he felt like he never got a hold of that. And he blames himself for why that was cut. Who knows why it was really cut, but he felt like, oh, he he didn't do a good job in this scene. And this, I think this was his first scene that he shot. Brian, do you have anything to say? I always thought when it came to this world was like the opposite of Twin Peaks. You know, like mm. the curious woman to me was like, the mirror version of the log lady or yeah. um you know when they go to um the Paps. Paps, it's like the opposite of the devour diner and then chet desmond is the opposite of dale cooper their initials are just flipped dale cooper is a he's up first thing in the morning coffee and then chet desmond he's like a, a night owl um mm. so i always like re- looked at the re- like they always like the twos like the mirror universe it's like mirror yeah i always saw it as a mirror kind of like a dark seedier version of twin peaks even though twin peaks is kind of dark and seedy on the underbelly um but yeah this is kind of out there it's not hiding anywhere it's all weird yeah and the six pole and the electricity right i mean it's like running through it's crossing through the trailer park is electricity and for me electricity is the blue rose it's one in the same so it's mm. like oh well it's connected it's not exactly the same but so it, it that that makes sense yeah yeah and you want in the script why they even had cliff it, it at first i wasn't sure it was gonna be a red herring if they were gonna try and like say yeah cliff was the murderer but i mean in this scene right away uh cooper is saying no no you know he's not he's you know he's just a bozo but it was interesting maybe they feel like we couldn't just you had to show that he was doing his work and detective work to say oh we have cliff here in the trailer park could he be connected to everything and just go through the motions okay no the thing is that um i i should have actually kind of guessed that cliff would have been a little more essential at one point because in that scene when Cooper goes to uh, goes to the Fat Child trailer park in the movie, he talks about going to Deputy Cliff's trailer, mm-hmm. but it's almost like so redundant that it's almost like it wasn't even worth mentioning. It's not a bad or good thing. It was just it was kind of an off thing of like I, I don't know how many times I watched like oh wait I guess Deputy Cliff lives here type of moment. Yeah, good point. Yeah, and I think having this scene in the film and also the the the, the punch out showdown, as I call it, with <laughs> with the with the sheriff, I think that these kind of scenes, well, and with Deputy Cliff, is is helpful also to paint a picture of who he is when later on, you know, he has a demise, right? Isn't he? Isn't he the one yeah. who is shot, right? By right. Bobby. With, with Laura and Bobby, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So it kind of helps set the scene of like. Oh, we're not really. Th- are we really that sad that he's dying? I mean, obviously, right. no one should be murdered like that. Yes. But really, he's kind right. of not the greatest guy in all the ways possible. Right. Mm-hmm. In the original sure. series, we uh, Donna found out that uh, Bobby had shot somebody. And it's like, well, we, <laughs> it was he was a bad guy anyways. He wasn't a nice guy. But Tom, you mentioned the fight scene, so I think we should go into that. The unseen fight scene instead. Of, again, it's Cooper here doing the fight with Cable. Wait, Ben, is this the Scott Ryan reenacting the fight scene? 
<laughs> he does have a video. No, Scott's we, not involved. In when this. we went to the festival, Scott Ryan reenacted it. I forgot who, a few times. Every time he goes to the festival, he, if he has the chance, he will reenact. We were it. at the spot. We yeah. went through the whole. That place is a house. We actually toured the house. We went outside, and Scott Ryan and someone else did the whole fight and scott ryan he pretended to be k uh sheriff cable like it was a whole thing it was pretty cool good times yeah behind the sheriff's station Cooper, Cliff, Stanley, Cable, the secretary, and the FBI van driver all have stepped outside by the pile of iron bars. Now, J. Edgar, I'm going to take off my badge here. Do you mind? The only way you're going to get that body is over mine. He picks up a steel bar and bends it a la the picture in his office. Cliff turns to Cooper. You try that, you little monkey. I think I'll take off my badge as well. Cooper takes his coat and badge off. Cable takes his shirt off and Cooper follows. Cable is bare-chested and Cooper is in his FBI-issue underwear. Cooper goes to pick up an iron bar and Cable hits him with a sucker punch. As Cooper bends away from this, Cable rushes at him. Cooper stops him with a few well-placed punches to his face. Cable falls down and Cooper bends the steel bar over him. Cable stands up and rushes at Cooper who flips and flops him around. Cable tries one more grand roundhouse punch, which Cooper expertly ducks. Cooper eyeing Cable's glass jaw. This one's coming from J. Edgar Hoover. Cooper blasts him in the jaw, and Cable goes over. Lights out. All systems down. The no longer giggling secretary and Cliff stand and stare, and, after a moment of unbearable humiliation, they shuffle away. Sheriff Station later that afternoon. We see Stanley and the driver finishing loading the body into the van. One thing that has been troubling me, that lamp at the diner, do you think they were working on it for aesthetics reasons or was their work due to faulty wiring? If it was aesthetics, they weren't my aesthetics. Aesthetics are subjective, aren't they, Agent Cooper? Stanley extends his hand. I'm Sam Stanley, if you ever need me. Thanks, Sam, for the good work. You have a great eye for detail. We do notice things, don't we, Agent Cooper? They shake hands. As he enters the van, Cooper can barely make out what Stanley says as he points to the driver. We see the river near Deer Meadow. As Cooper stares into the stream, he dictates into his recorder. Diane, it's 4.20 in the afternoon. I am standing here at St. Joseph's Creek where they found the body of Teresa Banks. Diane, this case has got a strange feeling for me. All the roads lead to a dead end. I've just sent Sam Stanley back to Portland with the body of Teresa Banks. As sure as I am that we won't find any clues here, I am just as sure that this is not a one-time murderer. The letter below the fingernail gives me the feeling that the killer will strike again. But like the song says, who knows where or when. What do you think, Emily? What do you think of this scene? 
Oh, it's so good. Aesthetics are subjective. Oh, come on. It's like Lynch and Frost are like, see, you can love it. You cannot love it. The art will speak for itself and you decide what you want to do with it. It's such a, a, a macro meta commentary. In the film, it's the the lamp is, he, he's actually asking about the blue rose, right? So the lamp, he says, the. Mm. do you think they were working on it for aesthetic reasons or was their work? There's something that's bothering me or on my mind. In the movie, it's the blue rose. So but again, that for me is that link, like the electricity and the faulty wiring is the blue rose. So there's that link of, mm. of what is mysterious or what is what is unknown, what is unexplainable, what's out of nature is also related to electricity. So I see that again, too. But that macro moment about aesthetics is so that's like my favorite part of this um, that I wish was in the film um, because it's so good. The fight, I'll just say briefly, and then I'll turn it over to call. In the movie, Chris Isaac in that cute white t-shirt, that, that is adorable and that works for me. But to think about Cooper and Desmond taking that risk to take off their badge and punch this guy out, they do take risks, right? Coop goes and rescues Audrey from when I jacks. He's taking risks. He's, he's pushing his own boundaries. But this, for me, feels a little bit like too much, like are they really going to take go to that level to do? I don't know. It's something about it that doesn't quite it. It doesn't. It's funny to watch. I mean, it's hilarious, right? I want bending the steel. It's like this masculinity off. It doesn't for me say anything different or more interesting about their characters. If anything, it kind of says, oh, they're going to go to, you know, the sheriff's level. They're going to bend bend the 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 steel down on his level and i'm kind of glad it was cut for those reasons am i happy that we get to see chris isaac doing it in the missing pieces sure it's fun but i'm okay with it not having made it to firewalk with me those are just my thoughts i guess to uh continue on with the uh cooper versus cable fight the one thing i thought was interesting is that at least the way they have in the script it seems like cooper's more precise and a little more prompt with taking down cable so that was something i thought was interesting because in the in the missing pieces it seems like Cable gets a few good blows on Desmond, and then he finally gets the upper hand. But uh, the other one is that, and this is coming back to the relationship of Cooper and Stanley compared to Desmond and Stanley, is that he seems to be, you know, very polite and respectful to him. And all I could think of was that scene in the pilot when uh, when Cooper sees Laura's body and says, oh, take this to Albert, uh, don't take this Stanley. Albert is more on the ball about it. And <laughs> it's just kind of strange is that, that like Stanley is very strangely perceptive, and it seems like in the pilot... He's kind of just like, you know, doesn't think as highly of, uh, of uh, Sam Stanley. But uh, to actually come back to uh, Emily's point about the lamp, the one thing I kept on thinking about was that uh, how it reaffirmed electricity, because in the missing pieces, not only are they working on the lamp, but there's what appears to be a woodsman in the corner. And uh, that's always something that always stood out to me of like, oh, there's got to be something larger at work with like what's going on at Hap's Diner and something how electricity was going to be more explicitly stated and more central to fire walk with me than uh, what we got. And we, we got a you know good amount of how electricity was central to fire walk with me, but this was just like adding more on top of it. I think Dale Cooper, you're right. I mean, you guys make a good point. Like seeing uh, Dale Cooper's character go to fisticuffs a little bit is so out of character. I don't, because he wouldn't take risks like that at all because he wouldn't want to be fired. He's a boy scout, you know? I mean, he even turned down Audrey, which Ben and me have talked about endlessly. And that was the right move. I see Chet Desmond is the opposite 
of Dale Cooper. So he would go to fisticuffs. He would not care. Um, but Dale Cooper, I don't think would do that. So it is an odd, an odd scene for him to be part of. I agree with you. And, you know, for years, I, there was always these, these talk about there these deleted scenes. And the one that they would show the picture of is there was a fight with, with, with uh, Desmond and Cable. And you finally get to see those missing pieces. And it is so comical and silly. And it just didn't, it doesn't connect. And it's like, it's like I'm so glad it was cut from the film because it just, <laughs> it's just awful. It's just like silly, like huffing and puffing. And, and right. And you make a great point, Emily, that it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like what you, I don't think either agent would have done that. It just doesn't seem, yeah. you know, they don't need to show how macho they are. They, I mean, they're they're more with their brains and trying to figure out the case. So, so the person who's playing Stanley is Bob, and Bob is doing a great job. And he he's he's muffles this one part of Stanley that you I can't hear at all, but it says eighty three thousand dollars. And so it seems like in the script, Stanley was always going into like offices counting how much everything would cost. So he would like rough and say, oh, the <laughs> office, <laughs> this coffee cup and this thing here. I bet it's about $83,000 worth of... of <laughs> I didn't know that. I didn't know yeah, that was a very silly thing though. he would just do. He would just spend his time. And I think in the movie, you see him, I think he looks like he is counting or he's doing something like looking around and he just seems like he's, you know, talking to himself. But he's spending his time trying to figure out how much things cost. I love it. I didn't know what that was. I'm really glad you explained that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. He is. He's very, he's extremely observant. He's really tracking all of the little intricate details of everything. And I love, he's in his head. He's so nerdy and great. I just yeah. love that character so much. And I think Kiefer Sutherland does an amazing job. He does. FBI headquarters, Portland, Oregon. Inside Gordon Cole's office. Every syllable of every word is the sound of two hands clapping. Is that what you said, Albert? Six to eight hands clapping. I was referring to the possibility of a little silence. Cooper, in the doorway across the hall, talks to Diane in the next room. While he talks, he does some isometrics against the doorframe. I know you haven't changed your hair, and I've seen that beautiful dress before. But I must say, Diane, you look sensational today. Diane speaks, but it's muffled. No, I am not trying to buy time. It's Thursday, and I know you have changed something in the room. And this time you've done very well. And I am going to tell you exactly what it is. In a moment, you have moved... Got it! It's the clock. You have moved it 12 inches to the left. Another triumph for the dashing Agent Cooper. And you, Diane, now have to take these files down to Agent Smith and make a fresh pot of coffee. Cooper, with a triumphant smile, walks over to join Cole and Albert. What was it, Coop? It was the clock. They give each other the thumbs up. Someone is walking down the hall. He enters the room. Gordon and Albert react like they have seen a ghost. Philip! Philip! In the doorway stands Philip Jeffries, the man who moments ago was in Buenos Aires. Cooper! Meet the long-lost Philip Jeffries. You may have heard of him at the Academy. Jeffries stares at the threesome. I'm not gonna talk about her. Keep Judy out of this. With a nod from Cole, Albert joins him in quickly ushering Jeffries out the door and up the hall. From the hallway, we hear... Stand fast, Coop. Cooper watches them take Jeffries up the hall. Who do you think that is back there? Suffered some bumps on the old noggin, eh, Phil? What the hell did you say? That's Special Agent Dale Cooper. 
Cooper sits in the room alone and somewhat confused. Cole, Albert, and Jeffries are now in another office down the hall. Are you okay, Jeffries? Where the hell have you been? I want to tell you everything, but I don't have a lot to go on. But I'll tell you one thing. Judy is positive about this. How interesting. I thought we were going to leave Jude out of this. Her sister's there, too. At least a part of her. Albert, I'll take that second mineral water. After some hesitation, Albert gets the message and discreetly leaves the room. Philip, let's calm down and get all of this interesting story on paper. Cole tries to raise someone on the intercom, but it doesn't seem to have any juice. Hello? Hello? He is getting nothing. Let me hear some good news. My device is faulty. Where the hell is the sound in this thing? Mayday! Hearing May, Jeffries turns and stares at a calendar on the wall. May? Jeffries still staring at the calendar. It is 1989. Cole is still trying to get the intercom to work. What? Am I alone? Cole turns back to Jeffries. But there is no one there. Jeffries is gone. Albert, come back here. He's gone. Call the front desk. Gone? What? I've got the front desk right now. He never was here. No record of him entering the building. And the doctor should be here any minute. Great. I, myself, am going to be ready for them. Cooper is in the doorway. Word association, Coop. What are you thinking about right now? Teresa Banks. Albert? Tylenol. Why are you thinking about Teresa Banks, Coop? It was a year ago today that Teresa Banks was killed. I'm wondering if the murderer will ever kill again. Albert, why Tylenol? No offense, sir, but after a day with you, it is mandatory. Buenos Aires Hotel Corridor. Jeffries is suddenly standing in the second-story hallway of the Buenos Aires Palm Deluxe Hotel. The wall behind him is seared black and smoking. A terrified maid is whimpering and scampering away from Jeffries, trying to stave away an epileptic fit. She is looking at him like he is the devil personified. The bellhop had run further away, but has turned back to see Jeffries reappear. He is afraid to come any closer. Hey. Hey. Oh, Mr. Jeffries. The shit had come out of my ass. Santa Maria! Where did you go? They stare at each other as the blackened wall continues to smoke. <laughs> they did so good. That was an amazing performance by everybody. That was so good. It- when I heard that earlier, I thought it was actually Cole. I was like, is that Gordon Cole? I was like, what? they're so good. They're all Andy, so uh, good. So good. Yeah. So, Colin, what do you think about this scene? Um, out of all the scenes that we uh, I wrote down notes for, this is actually one of the second most. So I'll try to break it down as uh, good as I can. I think the first thing that stands out is that the scene, the Diane scene, as much as I didn't like it in the missing pieces, I actually like it a lot less here. Um, I don't know. There's just something about the dynamic of uh, of Cooper and Diane that just seems off. Uh, maybe I'm just saying this because I, you know, of course, you know, we know it is in season three to a certain extent, mm. but it just seems really off in this. And uh, I also think that the in the movie, we actually have a very flawless build up to Cooper, uh, you know, and how he has the dream about Philip Jeffries. I think that's a much better intro for the two of them. And uh, the one thing I will say they do like is that. Uh, in the movie uh, with Philip Jeffries, it seems like he emerges because of the disappearance of Desmond. 
but in the script, it seems like it's uh, more central to Laura because this takes place in 1989, right before her scene. So that part I thought was really interesting. Uh, the other one is that uh, when they bring up Judy and her sister and how part of her is there, it does also make me think because Bob Angles, he talks about how, at least when he talked about Firewalk Me, how it was always entertained that Josie would be the sister of Judy at the time. Yeah. And it makes me think of like, you know, how Philip Jeffries, even his omnipresent state, would know about uh, Josie's fate, uh, assuming that's what they were going for at the time. I think you're right. Yeah. Oh my gosh, there's so much here. I, I, a couple things. One is, yeah, I, I agree with you, Colin, about the Diane part, the Diane talk. Um, I don't think he would refer to himself, Coop would refer to himself as the dashing agent Cooper. I don't think he would say that. It's no. just like, it's not realistic. The dialogue for me is not working there. But I'll say that what really stood out to me here is the kind of the fun with word association mm -hmm. after Jeffries disappears and kind of just to have like a psychological nerdy moment, um, you know, historically word association has been used like in psychoanalysis, like, like, you know, you sit and you think like what's coming into your head, you just say it out loud, right? Free association. And so I think the power in the free association, the word association here is very meaningful. And there's a, there's a concept in psychology called reveries and reveries are like thoughts or ideas or fantasies or daydreams that kind of float into your head and that mm -hmm. you think may not mean anything right like i'm sitting here and all of a sudden i'm thinking of a truck or something and i might say truck out loud and it's like truck there's no truck here what does that mean but it might actually have meaning and so i think about associations and reveries in this that actually are quite meaningful so um you know what's coming through the unconscious is coming to be conscious by saying it out loud and when coop says Teresa banks He's, he then goes, oh, because it's been a year since she since she died. But we don't know at that point that there's a link to Teresa Banks, Philip Jeffries, Judy, Blue Rose, Laura. But he says it and he associates it and then it becomes meaningful. Um, we don't know exactly what it means, but it's important. It's like a synchronistic event, right? Like in the, I think in the second season when, when they find the, the facts comes in about the poker chip and then they find Waldo at the same time. And there's that uh -huh. synchronistic event. It's like word associations and reveries. Let's pay attention. Synchronistic events. Let's pay attention. It all has meaning. And that's what is so cool about how Cooper thinks about solving crimes. He's paying uh -huh. attention to everything. He's paying attention to the unconscious and sort of circumstances that are happening in real time. And I don't know what to make about Albert thinking about Tylenol. I mean, probably he was just making a joke about yeah. having this whole thing as a big old headache, but maybe not. Maybe Tylenol is something interesting. I don't know. If I was thinking about it psychoanalytically and psychodynamically, I would pay attention to the Tylenol too. But anyway, those are my word association thoughts. Maybe Leland needs the Tylenol to keep uh, Bob away or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was thinking, I, I don't know if this is word association, but I think it's in the movie. So Albert and Cooper are hanging out and 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 Cooper does say that like I feel like he's gonna kill again, and I think you know she's a high school student and she's troubled. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. then I think Albert says something like, "Well, what is she doing right now?" And she, and she's making a uh, abundance feast. And then we cut to her at the double R. Do you remember that? I mean, I yes, it, it's yes, like that in a way too. That it's his way of of connecting unconsciously, and he does that. He pays attention to everything. And that's what I think is is the power of what Cooper's doing and also how he's his spiritual presence. You know, he's only able to do this and to word associate and to tap into Laura making an abundance of food 
because he's practicing so deeply into his spiritual being. Like Mm -hmm. he's tapping into that and practicing meditation and hanging upside down. And from the, Uh you know, he's actively practicing that as part of being an FBI agent. And that's what makes him so good at what he does, in my opinion. Right. That's very true. I mean, a lot of this was in some of the missing pieces and in the film, but it's interesting in the script here that Cooper is asked to stay behind and they, they're going to go down the hall. And and I, it's almost like Albert and Gordon Cole can ha- talk to Philip, uh, but Cooper can't talk to him about this. And it's interesting to see how, I mean, I'm even thinking about how you had a stage. It's like, okay, we're going to go down the hall. And then at one point, I actually thought maybe Gordon Cole was telling Philip to, uh, no, sorry, uh, Albert to leave because he was kind of getting in the way of the discussion with with uh, Agent Jeffries and stuff. And he says, go get me some water and stuff because I need to have this conversation and stuff. But it's always interesting to see what you start off with in a script and then they kind of adjust probably in the second draft and then even maybe getting on on stage there and actually performing it. Hayward House, Thursday, seven days before. Donna! Donna! Donna gathers her books and comes out the door. Just a minute, Laura! On the sidewalk, Donna joins Laura. If I'm going to get through math today, you're going to have to bring me up to speed quick. You didn't do your homework? I couldn't. Okay, this test is going to be about the theorems I told you about last week. You remember that- Don't tell me now. Tell me right before the test. I won't be able to remember long enough. You may graduate. Miracles do happen. You graduating this year will be proof that miracles happen. Thanks. Laura tweaks Donna's cheek. James called me last night looking for you. When? The usual, 9.15. He probably wanted to drive over. Were you with Bobby? No. I don't know what I'm going to do about Bobby. I know he's seeing someone else, and that's okay with me. And he thinks I'm seeing someone else. That's not okay with him. Are you going to tell him about that someone else? I don't know what to do. You know what your problem is. Donna smiles. You're just too adorable. Laura smiles back. (laughs) You know, I think you're right. I'm just too adorable. (laughs) They continue up the sidewalk laughing. Emily, what do you think of this scene? I mean, I love all the scenes with Donna and Laura in Fire Walk With Me. Not so much in the show, but in Fire Walk With Me, I feel Moira Kelly as Donna and what she represents, which is that kind of innocence that Laura lost, you know, since she was 12, right? When she was starting to be abused. And so um, I love the scene with them. I think that it's very realistic that at this point, and this is going to get a little nerdy psychological, but at this point in Laura's experience of trauma that has been going on for so many years, it's very realistic that she's not going to remember what Donna says about the math Mm. until the moment. She can't actually hold it in her brain because she's so flooded and overwhelmed. And she's in a kind of a out of her when what we call like a window of tolerance which is what she can her nervous system can tolerate she's at this point like how is she even going to school right now 
Do you know what I mean? How is she even functioning on the day to day? So she's out of her window of tolerance. So any information is going to flood her even more. And I see her fluctuating between Laura in this film, Cheryl Lee, the gifts that Cheryl Lee gives us in this movie. She's fluctuating between being overly anxious and overwhelmed and flooded to numbing out dissociating, kind of checking out. And I think that in her scenes with Donna and even in this scene, she's kind of performing as if she can function in the world, but she's really checked out. She really can't focus at school. She actually can't. Physiologically, psychologically, she's not able to do that. And so I really like this scene. And, you know, I was sad that it wasn't in the the movie because I think it really works. Um, Yeah. I don't know if I have a better answer than that, but um, what I will say is that I think what we get in the movie, like, uh, because, you know, we see of Cheryl Lee, she is incredibly expressive with her eyes, where I feel like there's so much more that's said about uh, her and Donna's relationship that's so much more in, like, their general silence towards school than the script did. Uh, So I think I hone in on more so just, like, how Cheryl Lee uses silence. But uh, the other one is that I did like the idea that she talks about how she knows Bobby was with someone else because, you know, when I know that's somewhat late in the secret diary that I think not only does she know, but she knows it's Shelly even. And it's actually kind of nice to know that even if Laura can't really share everything with Donna, that she will share this with her. And I also do like how she does call out the hypocrisy that Bobby has this kind of stones from glass houses sort of thing of like, she's okay with it, you know, him doing his thing, but he's like very, I, I guess just hypocritical. Uh, yeah, it just, yeah. Uh, you know, he just, it's just very insecure. And just to add to that, I, I think too, that she can't talk to Bobby about anything about James because a, I don't think she can tolerate it, like because of what's going on for her, but also Bobby's her drug dealer. And at this point, drugs and substances are the things that she's using in order to actually keep going through her day. So if she loses Bobby in some way, she loses her ability to function in this last week of her life. So it's actually impossible for her to risk losing Bobby in any type of way. That's interesting. This is kind of like um, a thing that we have discussed, Ben and our friend David Bushman and Scott Ryan. And we always talk about this. What do you guys prefer? Do you guys think that uh, Moira Kelly, it, I think she's my favorite Donna. And I guess the conversation and the debate has always been around the fact that is she the perfect Donna for this movie? Or is she the perfect Donna that should have been in all of Twin Peaks? I think she's a perfect Donna for this movie. But I almost prefer the actress portraying Donna in Twin Peaks. I know we don't have that, but I kind of wish we did. I don't know what you guys, your thoughts on that at all. Well, actually for me, um, I actually do bring this up in my Laura Palmer episode is that I view Maura Kelly. It's almost like, cause when I watch Firewalk with me, I view that we're looking at Twin Peaks explicitly through her eyes where it's sort of like the idea that trauma and memory, they don't go quite hand in hand. I view, I think that she views her friendship with Donna and Donna herself as a certain purity. And that, you know, what she sees is totally different than, you know, what other people see. And there was a trickle down effect. And this is kind of how I kind of iron out some of the, I guess, continuity errors, if you will, that it's all in Laura's head and enough of it is right, but it's not completely there. So for me, like, I think the fact that we have Maura Kelly's Donna, it actually makes Laura Flynn Boyle's Donna even stronger because of that. Just Mm -hmm. because there's the two dynamics that from what Laura sees versus what she is. Well, I really like that, Colin. That's a very cool take. Yes, that helps me because I 
I historically am very like not Laura Flynn Boyle, <laughs> like a, a cheerleader for her, but because I'm like team Moira Kelly all the way. I think about it in terms of archetypes. I think about Moira Kelly as the innocent archetype in Fire Walk With Me, right? She's the innocent. Mm-hmm. She represents that part of Laura that was lost, that was taken from her as a result of the evil that men do. And then I think of what happens with Donna Hayward and Laura Flynn Boyle in the series, and she turns into the temptress. I mean, she basically takes over what Laura was doing. She literally wears her sunglasses. She starts smoking cigarettes for some reason, right? She she does, you know, horrible things, in my opinion, to Harold Smith. She becomes uh, an embodiment of a temptress archetype. And so I think Laura Flynn Boyle actually does that fairly well, which makes me not really like her. So she's doing a good job. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's great. Laura speeds through Lowtown on the way to Harold Smith's and her mom's 56 Roadmaster Buick. Laura skids up outside the apartment of Harold Smith, then backs the car up to a darkened, more enclosed area amongst some trees. Cautiously, she gets out of the car and then hurries to Harold's door. She frantically knocks on the door. Smith answers. Laura! Laura rushes past him to the sofa, opening the book for him to see. My secret diary. There are pages missing. Who would do that? Bob. Bob isn't real. Bob is real. He's been having me since I was twelve. Stunned, Harold doesn't know what to do. He's real. He speaks to me. Talks to me. What does Bob say? He wants to be me or he will kill me no no oh yes yes laura starts towards him frightening harold what please she allows the feeling of bob to come over her and she begins to scream harold steps back but laura grabs him to his face with a horrifying expression on hers through the darkness of future's past The magician longs to see one chance out between two worlds. Fire, walk with me. She buries herself on his shoulder. They break. You have to hide the diary, Harold. You made me write it all down. He he doesn't know about you. You will be safe. Laura stares at Harold, her eyes widen, terrified with suspicion. You're not Bob, are you, Harold? If you are, you can kill me right now. Kill me right now if you are. Laura, no, I'm not. I'm not Bob. (laughs) Poor Laura. I wish I could help you. He holds her. I hate him. I hate it. Sometimes I love it. But now I'm afraid. I'm so afraid. But you're strong, Laura. So much stronger than I. How can I help you? I can't. I can't even go outside. Laura reaches up and tenderly touches his cheek. What about James? Can't James help you? 
You two are so in love. He's in love with a girl who's dead. She hands him the diary. It is dangerous for you to have it. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Laura! Laura goes out to the car. After starting the Roadmaster, she takes a snort of cocaine. She pulls out onto the highway. We watch her face struggling with the prospects of the terrifying future. I, well, before you guys say anything about that scene, though, I want to say, Ben, great job editing these scenes. The music, uh, I, especially this scene when, when, after Laura with the music and everything, it, like I got chills. I felt like I was watching the movie. And I, so yeah, I, I think this is the music from the movie. So sometimes I try to base it on that. But yeah, yeah great job. Sometimes it's just, I mean, should I tell my editing secrets? Sometimes I, I have the music there partly because I just want it to sound good, like room tone and make everybody sound right together. And so like cleaning it up that way. But it's really the performances, you know, Bill and Blythe. I mean, they're amazing. I mean, they did an yeah. incredible job. Yes. I agree. Oh, I guess credit to, uh, you know, who, uh, who portrayed Laura, because this was like genuinely like a chilling. It, it, it's 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 definitely a tall order to take on the role of Laura for some like this, especially for this scene. So I can't stress enough like that she succeeded on this. And I will also point out is that for Cheryl Lee, the idea that if she delivered the full fire walk with me poem, that might have been actually too intense because mm -hmm. she's already intense in that scene to begin with. But. Then I also like the transition of the trees uh, because, you know, there's always something nefarious about the trees where it's something where I feel like there's some clear cut, but I can't explain it all at the same time. But the other one that I thought was interesting and obviously with Lynch, he didn't he wasn't as big on continuity, the secret diary and might not even read the secret diary to my knowledge. But I did think it was interesting that Laura says he doesn't know about you. And in the secret diary, one of the pages that's torn out is when Laura's starting to explain who Harold Smith is. And we don't know anything beyond that, but I always thought that regardless if Lynch, you know, whether he read the diary or not, that there was like an interesting point uh, for me that that's always stood out to me. And just mentioning that, I always thought, I mean, at least back in the day, I used to think that maybe Bob had killed Harold, but I, in deleted scenes in the script, actually, I think Cooper goes to Harold's uh, and it said that it was, I mean, he, yeah. I mean, it said Bob wasn't. I know they brought Mike in, the one-armed man, and he says Bob was not here and stuff. This is in the the unseen scenes and stuff like that. But I always thought it would seem so, with him not leaving the house, it seemed very you know convenient that somebody could come in and make it look like he killed himself. Or but Emily, what do you think about this scene? Well, I love Harold Smith. I'm actually writing a piece about Harold Smith for the next um, issue of the Blue Rose magazine, um, and. I really love when he says, you know, well, pleading about, well, James, can't James help you? He's on the outside. I'm stuck here. And she says he's in love with the girl who's dead, mm. which is, again, in, in another way, saying your Laura disappeared, which, you know, shout out to Scott Ryan's book, uh, Firewalk with me, your Laura disappeared, which is so which is such a great accompaniment to everything we're talking about, too, just in terms of the the film. But that's it. There's a part of Laura that's that's dead now that's gone. Mm. Right. Her innocence is gone and she's so confused. Her trauma is such that she's so confused at this point. Her versions of reality in the lodge world are getting blurry here. So when she says in this thing we just listened to, she says, you're not Bob, are you, Harold? If so, you can kill me right now. She's so terrified, but she's also resolving that Bob is going to do this. And so mm -hmm. she has to go along with it. And but she's confused. Is Harold this? Is it happening right now? She doesn't know what's what. What is reality and what's what's not? 
real. And I was thinking that, you know, both Bob is such a compartmentalized part of her life. And so is Harold. Like nobody really knows about Harold, except maybe the Meals on Wheels people. But Um, Harold's this very compartmentalized sort of shut off secret part of her life, too. And I think the diary, again, I'm a therapist, so I think psychologically, but I think the diary is her giving a part of herself to him to say, can you keep this part of me when I'm gone? Keep me living on, you know, and he, he really, he lives, he talks about, you know, making like a, what does he call it? Like a living journal or something. I forget the words he uses, but this is what he does, right? He, he tells, he keeps stories. He's a historian. He's a, he preserves things. And Mm. so he's preserving that part of her. And this is her last moment to say, take a part of me and please keep it and keep it safe because I'm about to go. And so I'm confused. What's what, who are you? What am I doing? I'm saying words that are, I'm saying the fire walk with me chant. Oh my goodness. I'm, I'm losing it. I'm losing touch. So please keep the part of me that is real and is me keep my Mm. secrets for me, please. And hold on to them. Um, And I love that. And I love that about Harold and yes, Harold's got some problems and you know, whatever else, but for those reasons, I think this scene is, is really important. And I also love Lenny Van Dolan. Can we just give a shout out to him oh, and rest, yeah. rest in peace? Cause he had just recently passed too, but mm-hmm. he does such a, a great job in the, in the film and in the show. And they talking about uh, Harold, you know, holding on to uh, Laura's diary. It made me think about the second season and like him being so upset when James and Donna tries to steal that diary. And I, by you saying that it, it was even more powerful because right he he that was like maybe his last thing he could do for Laura was he can't leave the house he can't help her in any way but he can take care of her something that meant a lot so I mean that's a nice touch to think now looking back at sec- second season it wasn't that he was trying to hold on to secrets or yeah. or that it was that yeah he was doing something bad it was really that he cared about Laura and that he thought he could take care of it, her diary. Actually, Ben, um, that does make me think. um, So last time I watched Fire Walk with me, I was thinking about this is that when Laura says, I don't know if I'll ever see you again, maybe never. There's that moment where you see on Lenny Von Dolan's face, this devastation. The thing is that he goes up to the door, but he never goes out. And the Mm -hmm. thing is, in the second season, there's that part where Donna has the diary and she's toying with him and he actually takes a step outside. And it made me think, I was like, that really, to me, that show that shows how how loyal he was to, you know, Laura or any friends he could come across, because if he could make that extra step to protect her secrets, that's, mm-hmm. that says something tremendous about Harold Smith. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so glad you brought up Scott Ryan's book. I mean, this is the perfect time that he, he has his fire walk with me, your Lord disappeared book, which ha- he covers all these, uh, these deleted scenes. He does a great job of it. And, and it's, but it's that is so much more. I mean, it's a wonderful book, and I definitely would recommend if you want to celebrate the 30th anniversary, you should pick up his book at bluerosemag.com. And is there anything else you want to share? I want, I want you guys to be able to mention your podcast. If you can tell us like what you guys are working on or what you guys just completed, like the most recent episode, can maybe uh, start with Colin. What, how are things going with your podcast? Honestly, it's been a really busy week for me. Um, so actually tomorrow at the time of this recording, I actually have my first interview, which is actually with Amy Shields. Um, how I got that is just absolutely, I'm still shocked by, but also, that's awesome. Oh, yeah. thank you. 
And then I have a couple other just traditional episodes. And by the time this episode comes out, I'll have the Laura Palmer and her last seven days with Aaron of Paranormal Princess. Uh, that one's like an hour and a half long because they're just a lot to unpack with uh, Laura scene by scene in it. And I think she did a great job of uh, of like what her viewpoint was. So that I'm actually I'm absolutely looking forward to. Um, as for the podcast itself, you can find me on stuff like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, type in cream corn in the universe. Uh, and with Twitter, you just put at you stole the corn. Uh, so yeah, no, it's if you ever can, uh, if you like the idea of a character based podcast where it's a different co host each week, um, it would mean a lot if you gave a follow. And Emily, can, can share with us about your podcast and how people can follow you? Twin Peaks Tattoo Podcast.com. And I'm on Apple, iTunes, and what is it called? SoundCloud. <laughs> and uh, I've had some amazing talks with folks in the community about their Twin Peaks tattoos. Uh, I've got Laura Stewart's coming out in August. Laura Stewart, who is just an incredible writer. And, and I've had a chance to interview folks like Lane Freefall, who's a British tattoo artist and tattooed people at the UK Twin Peaks Fest and also was happened to be in a Star Wars movie. And uh, other folks in the community, friends who, if anyone is interested in talking to me about their tattoos, just hit me up. I'd love to have a conversation. You don't have to be sort of someone who's a published academic about the topics. You can just be someone who loves from peaks and wants to talk about it because it's about your story. And so uh, we share stories and I've had a lot of wonderful stories. I'm going to be interviewing Rachel who runs Tweeds in North Bend and just, just amazing, amazing folks. I just had a great talk yesterday actually with Andy Bentley who did some of the voices here and who's uh, mm-hmm. really like uh, been on, on wrapped before and who's really awesome and has a lot to share. And so, yeah, come find me, come talk to me about your tattoos and, and think about, you know, what would be your firewalk with me tattoo? Ben, Brian, Colin, what would you guys get? What would be your tattoos for firewalk with me? I always say, I always, like, I want to get a tattoo when our show is coming to an end which will never end. We know that. Well, we got it. But I wanted we got to get it. it. I wanted to get it. Something to kind of represent that in my life. And I still do. I, I still, I don't know. I you, mean, you, 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 you suggested something to me. I'm the one that's having trouble with the tattoos, but ben, tell them what you, you had suggested. Well, I mean, originally, I mean, I don't know. I think about something all the time, but I, and, well, that was the owl symbol. Yeah. Right? But I feel like, a lot of people have that and i'm like that's so special that's it so is cool. it is for me i want but like the thing is you know with a tattoo you're like it's gotta you you gotta be happy with it so i mean i go back and forth and then when i see stuff online i'm like oh my god that's cool that's cool and then i'm like oh we i don't know i i eventually want it to happen i just can't make up my mind so yeah nice I know. What would I like if if I did want to get a tattoo? I'm trying to think. There are, I, I, there are some beautiful tattoos. I mean, I love the owls and 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 yeah. There's so many cool like uh, Twin Peaks things that you could have. Yeah. On there, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I've seen Laura Palmer tattoos they've done. So, there's so many beautiful ones. I don't know. I'd have to think a lot more about that. You, you want to get Sheriff Cable like in a punching position? Anything just but that. No. Up. I got it, guys. Oh, I got it. I know what I'll do. I'm going to get Scott Ryan tattooed, his face tattooed on my back. 
I know. Wow. That's that's it. Scott Ryan, and he's going to be bending table. Oh my god! That is the best answer I've heard. That's absolutely. You have to do it now. Yeah. Let's, we're gonna t- we're gonna see. Scott's gonna yeah. love that. He's gonna oh. love it. <laughs> I, I don't even know if I can go with that. Like I don't. No one can top that. Yeah. Um, Scott- even if Emily said, "There's no way my answer could be better." <laughs> That's so great. Uh, you know what else that you two could do is get your your amazing and Andy Bentley did this too. Your design for your for unwrapped, right? Yeah, did Andy right. Bentley did it? It's yes. such an incredible. Yeah. It's such a great design, and he was telling me about it yesterday when we talked. So you could yeah. do that too for sure. I was thinking that, yeah, like on on my leg or something. I I <laughs> mean, because sure. to me that represents Twin Peaks unwrapped and yes. means something special to me. So absolutely, yeah. Um, my next yeah. one lined up is I want to get the I want to get the chocolate bunnies. Uh, like the whole box the whole you know and yeah, like yeah yeah was one missing how many are missing yeah i think it's one yeah because yeah, yeah. uh, lucy ate it right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that's what that's my that's what i want to do yeah that's on the docket for me colin would you get a tattoo firewalk would be related or uh, if it was firewalk me related uh because my thing is that i think of like the symbols and how my thoughts can change over time of like something i think is benevolent can later on be malevolent but if i had to pick one it would probably be something related to the angel near the end of the movie. Cause I feel like there's just a unanimous feeling and I'll get to it when we get to scene 13, but um, yeah, no, there's uh there's definitely a lot of thoughts on the angels and like what I think, why it's so important that it ended up being in the final movie. That's a great answer, Colin. I really love that idea a lot. Even that whole, even that whole picture, right. That whole kind of vintage postcard mm. that she has on the wall with the angels. I've thought about that too. That's a beautiful one. Good answer. So that's like a sneak peek for yeah. our next show. We will talk more about angels. Do you want to close this out, Brian? Yes. Join us for part two in the next coming weeks for our 30th anniversary Firewalk with me. Thank you both for being on our panel today. Thank you for the unseen players putting on amazing performance. They're incredible. They did a uh, great job. Ben, I mean, the music, the editing, it, Chef's we couldn't kiss. do it without the unseen players. They're the ones that make it work. So yeah. they, they did an incredible job. Um, I think I challenged some of them. I mean, we had people playing, you know, different changing gender roles and stuff, which I I love that. I mean, it should anybody can play anybody, right? They did a great job. Yeah. So if you have a comment, a question, a theory, give us an email at twinpeaksunwrapped.gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at twinpeaksunwrapped. Like us on Facebook. We're on all the podcast platforms by now. I'm not going to name them all, but we're there. And we'll be back in a couple weeks with part two with our 30th anniversary of Firewalk with me. I am absolutely certain that the key to the solution of this riddle is hidden within this film.